you're German living in America. How did that happen? Um, complete coincidence. Um, grew up in East Germany. And one thing I always knew is that I wanted to go somewhere else at some point because I couldn't really when I was younger. And I had a few things in mind. Budapest for a while because a friend of mine studied with Kortak. Paris. But then my college choir went on a concert tour in 94 and ended up in Houston, Texas. And a friend of mine wanted to study at Rice. He is a violist. So I went to the school, met a teacher, and then ended up being at Rice for two years for my master's. And then came to New York and then ended up teaching at the school I went to here, Manhattan School of Music. You did your master's at Rice. That means you did your undergraduate in, oh, it's not an undergraduate, but you got your diploma where? Yeah, in Dresden, Dresden. Okay, yeah. 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 I spent four years and then externally finished the degree after I came here. And it was a great experience. I had like fantastic teachers. Um, composition teacher Jörg Herschett, who was a student of Paul Dessau, fantastic human being and, and artist and composer and everything, very influential for me. And also studied piano with Winfried Apel, also interesting character, artist. Um, so it was a, a great time. In what way influential? Um, they're not just teachers they're like mentors and i admired them for what they were as human beings as much as artists and in both cases um they had pretty difficult times during the east german re regime because of their political and beyond um, views and that really shaped them um, but they lived what they were talking about and it was a pretty pretty interesting combination i thought And I thought it was very inspiring. What do you mean live what they were talking about? Well, first of all, what was their political uh, friction between East German regime and whatever? Well, um, to talk about your cash at the composer, um, he was very religious. He was homosexual, vegetarian. Everything was basically wrong about him. Um, when he was studying in Dresden, he said text by Kafka as a cantata. At the time when there was a whole symposium in Dresden against Kafka, why he should not be read and part of um, the education in East Germany. So he got kicked out of the university, um, the college, the conservatory. And I was completely fine with him. So he lived off having maybe 40 marks a month, like a hermit. And he thought, if that's what it takes to write the music I want to write, so be it. So they took um, into account personal discomfort in order to produce the art they wanted to produce. And, I mean, that was possible back then, but now living in a time which is basically commercially oriented, it's very difficult to find people like that. And having met those when I was young, 19, um, I think it had a huge impact. What year was this, 80s? Um, yeah, basically in 1990, that's when I started um, to go to the conservatory. So it was right after the war came down, but that time, 50s, 60s, 70s had shaped them so much, so they're basically like still pretty much part of that um, mentality. So do you emulate yourself after them, or...? Um, of course, I mean, as much as it's possible, but times are different, and also I, I grew up in a different time and I was shaped by different ideas. But I think it's basically that um, notion that art is not something that you do at certain hours, it's life, that you basically cannot divide those two, that you live your life as an artist in every single aspect. Um, and that has to do with a lot of things such as consistency and so forth. 
that's something that um, I haven't found often. I found this again, definitely, but it was nice having found this when I was being educated, you know, at, a, at an age when you're still being shaped and so forth, because they became really models and, and mentors, mentors in, in that kind of regard. Of course, it is very different for them nowadays as well because society has changed so much and living here also is a different thing. But I mean, you, you live in New York where the financial pressures are in such a way that it's almost impossible to of course. do that. So yeah. how do you reconcile those two things? How do, you, how do you find a way to try and be that way with living in a context that will not allow you to do that at all? Well, the living um, part is one aspect, but also the teaching part, since I teach a lot, is another one. And that's something that I'm, I find personally very important. Like composition to me is not a hobby. That's not something that you do because you might like it. I actually constantly question the relevance of um, a personal um, approach to I do it because I like it. I don't think it's enough. I think if you produce art or music in specific, something that goes out, that reaches an audience, you have a responsibility. And that has to do with integrity, with knowledge and all kinds of, of things um, that go way beyond what you do when you when you sit down and write music. And that's something that I think I really learned from, from those people, that it goes way beyond liking it or maybe even being good at it, that it has a certain social context in which it works that you reach out to people and just because of that you have to make sure that um, the level of integrity and so forth is something that you consider um, and it has to do with how you educate yourself what you expose yourself to just the level of knowledge and there's so much disinterest that I often see um, which kind of baffles me because I think you, you have to be part of it to a degree that's just very very high otherwise shouldn't do it what do you mean by disinterest you mean in the composer while he's writing or? yeah for example um i mean ignorance is always um something that's around of course it's it's a danger it's easy to not expose yourself to things which are discomforting that might not be something that you inclined to be interested in, um, but I don't think it works like this. I think as an artist, you have to expose yourself to all kinds of things. It very much comes down to what Schoenberg also said, that if you know that a truth is uncomfortable, you still have the responsibility of exposing yourself because that's something that's part of life and therefore it's being part of being an artist. Can you give me an example of something in uh, something that was uncomfortable for you to expose yourself to that changed you in the way that made you have to focus on something else? Of course, there's many ways in, in how that works. Bring it down to specific things. There's many ways of how that translates itself as well. Politics, for example. Um, I think art is political to a certain, de to, to a degree. Like how you translate that into a specific piece of art is a different story. But we live in comfortable societies, even in New York, where it's difficult, you know, to, make ends meet and so forth relatively speaking yes it's relatively very comfortable yeah, yeah, it's, yeah it's comfortable um if you travel to countries that don't have that kind of standard of living um of course that, that can be pretty eye-opening and um our societies often make us look away we read about this in the news and so forth but we don't expose ourselves to that we don't think about those terms um environmental issues is something else um, climate change and so forth and so forth 
But I think as an artist, you have to know about those things. You have to know what's going on in the politics of the world, um, what's going on in society, what's going on in the corners of society which are troubled, and every society has those. Um, looking away, I don't think, is an option. And you have to deal with them. And there's a lot of artists that I've met that consider art to be an escape, um, and I think that's something that wouldn't work for me. You have to look at it, go toward it, and somehow deal with it. Um, the composer I studied with in Dresden, New York Cassid, actually said that Art is like a, a side product. It's something that comes out of life and dealing with all kinds of aspects of it. And there's so much complexity that it's not all polished and beautiful, but it's also it can be ugly um, and discomforting. But I think it's part of it because that's who we are. It's, it's more confrontational. It should be more confrontational, either in a yeah, clear definitely. way or a subversive way. I, I, I definitely agree. It should not be entertainment. And we live in a society that's so much based on entertainment, that makes time pass, that makes you feel better, comfortable, and so forth. I think art is not a place for it. And it means that um, as an artist, you know, you have to deal with all those kinds of things. Do you think it's possible to do both in a way? Okay, so I had a great... I, I, I always bring it back to this, but like certain television shows that I think are just incredibly fascinating and engaging and popular on a mass scale but at the same time very very confrontational and critical about things that reflect a certain political situation um i would be curious what those are i don't watch television so i'm not exactly sure what exists in that regard yeah but from what i've seen watching movies for example and that's something that i'm interested in although i wouldn't claim that i know that much about it myself the moment you try to reach a mass audience, you start to compromise. And that means that you will have to cut edges here, cut edges there, because otherwise you wouldn't be able to reach a mass audience. And immediately um, that will reflect on the thing that you do, and that has to do probably with content and how you communicate it and so forth. I even started to think that the moment a lot of people find access to it that kind of takes away from the specialty um, of what it is that i think the special things are always for a few not for not for many but our society is so much based on quantities and reaching mass audiences seems to be an incentive and even when you educate um, musicians as at the school we're sitting right now um, orchestras and opera houses are usually what matters the most because those have most of the audiences. But I find it questionable. Um, I think the the creative things happens in smaller venues first. They might at some point, of course, um, be communicated to larger ones. But um, being creative means experimenting. It means trial and error. It means failure. And, and there has to be also the possibility for those kind of things. And it usually happens in, in smaller venues. So how is your work aware and political in that way because you're talking very like generally now and now i'd like to try and kind of focus it down on something like a little bit more concrete like this is why i did this in this mm -hmm. piece and okay maybe it's not about occupy wall street or financial or the financial crisis or I don't mm -hmm. know, the, the war in afghanistan or any type of many harsh political truths that we that we're confronted with in a clear way but it's still has that in it. How does that translate to notes on a page? Yep. I was waiting for that. You ask great questions. Um, okay. <laughs> well, it's important though, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so let me quote Lachenmann, which I 
like doing 41C is extremely smart and insightful in those kind of things. I think he's one of the greatest artistic minds that I've ever encountered. So he came to a class of mine here at Manhattan School of Music a few years ago, the Composition Forum. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, it took no me, way. It took me about a year to make this happen, but it did happen. And it was two hours that I still hate myself for not having recorded or at least written down things right and left. I was just sitting there listening to all the things that he had to say. I've met him before, but in that kind of setting... Um, Did him, people appreciate what was happening yeah. at MSS? So people were like, well, and people well, from the composers outside. did. No, no, from, not from the outside. But it was also difficult to publicize and, and so forth. So it was like we had like Maya's recording studio, so it was about like 30, 40 people in there. But regardless of what the aesthetics are that those people in the room usually feel attracted to, like everybody seemed to be really impressed. Because it goes way beyond, you know, like borders and boundaries of aesthetics and so forth that we it was basically deeply human and that's very touching but there was a student that asked him whether art should be political or not and um what lachmann said is that when the nazis took over 1933 in germany they immediately banned certain type of art including music and that was for example the music of the second viennese school so Webern, Berg, Schoenberg couldn't be performed in Germany anymore. And Berg and Webern were not Jewish, so it has nothing had nothing to do with that kind of racial aspect. And I didn't even write political music, you know, like music that maybe used lyrics that had um, a political content and so forth. It was merely the fact that that music questioned conventions, that it questioned aspects that had been you know, established certain traditions that made the Nazis ban the music because they realized that this music asks questions, that it goes beyond, that it searches, and that's something any kind of dictatorship doesn't want. When I grew up in East Germany, it was basically exactly the same thing. And that's why composers like Stockhausen or Cage and Boulez, that you barely didn't get to hear them because they question. So it is not something that can be maybe boiled down to let's say, a literary statement. It is, in a way, a general approach to what it means to create art that, of course, becomes very specific by how you deal with material, with form, and all those aspects. And that's something that I I find very valuable. I mean, I just taught a lesson before we met, and um, we talked about the solo violin piece, and the student said, um, three-part form, introduction, development, recapitulation. And of course, I want to know why. It's not that you cannot use a form like this, which has been established, or had been established and used many, many times. But there's got to be a reason. And I want to know what's your question, what's your search. How do you not accept it? How do you go beyond? And I think, you know, that becomes very specific, but also it's very general. Mm -hmm. So like the mere fact that an audience, because I'm, I'm thinking of an an audience member being pushed now, not just within the compositional making process, is that it becomes political on the level of them saying, oh, I didn't know that that was possible in a solo violin piece. And that mere kind of pushing them, oh, I didn't know that was possible, somehow can translate to some type of a political push in their head or political thought. You know, it, it, it frees up a certain amount of space that also daily life and politics can also occupy after you do it. Yeah, um, I mean, it can represent itself in, in a lot of different ways. And if you approach a solo violin piece by by asking, so what can I do? 
what's possible. Like, how can I take what I have, what has been done, and go further? How can I make this personal? How can I put this in a context that, you know, makes it sound different from what it was before? Like, those kind of approaches represent themselves in lots of different ways. And at the end, it comes down to really life. And this is what I meant earlier, that studying with those um, guys in, in Dresden was so inspiring because there didn't seem to be that kind of division. And the extreme political situation in East Germany, of course, often pushed people into that corner that a choice of repertoire became a reflection on who you are as a human being that had all kinds of consequences. Or the choice of a material as a composer did exactly the same thing. Were they aware that they were being pushed? Um, of course, extremely, because the society always made sure that there was a black and a white, and you almost had no choice um, of being in between. And you found yourself here or there, and sometimes even by surprise, because you thought you're doing something very natural by using a text. By That's what I mean by like surprise, like, oh, this is just what I'm naturally doing. But at the same time, I'm kind of, I'm unaware that this actually a political climate is pushing me in a certain direction, like almost in the same way that I think a lot of composers that are in America often are like, oh, I'm going to just do, f I love film music. I want to do film music, you know, or I want to write big, you know, neo-romantic orchestral pieces. And I think that's a type of, okay, so there's a political ideology behind that that they're not even aware of that's kind of pushing them in that direction subversively to yeah. the point where they're there and, then, and they don't even realize that they're kind of a product of what But I think that's important. This awareness is extremely important. Yeah. Um, now, in East Germany, there might have been a moment of the surprise in the very beginning. But other than that, the society made sure that you're very aware of where you are and where you stand um, because of the consequences that you basically had to live with. But um, that is very different nowadays. A lot of things have become very vague. Um, it's actually interesting that a lot of composers in East Germany, once the war came down, couldn't write music. Because what did they, what audience did they write for? Um, you produce art for a certain part of society. Now that the society had disappeared, um, what's the place? You know, where, where do you fit? And that doesn't matter because the people are still kind of conditioned in the same way. It's just a different yeah. context that they're being thrown in or like a larger political context. So it's weird that they were, you, you were still Ryko the day after the wall came down. So why would you not appreciate a composer's? No, that's, that's perfectly right. But, yeah. um, it was actually also a lot of rock musicians experienced the same thing. Um, they had a certain message in the art and the music, and it was often a political one. But now that the opponent, so to speak, had disappeared, like and nobody wanted to listen to that music anymore. I mean, they had to really redefine themselves and find another reason for why they, um, do what they do or like find a different way of doing what they were doing. It is very interesting. It's also very complex because you don't understand it as it's happening. It's something that takes many, many years um, to really fully understand as we still deal with those 12 years between 33 and 45. And we're still trying to understand what's going on. And we haven't really come to um, many conclusions, um, which you can see also based on present day politics, um, even back in Germany and Europe. But this awareness thing is one thing that I find very important. Um, and it's also something else that when Pierre Boulez was at MSM, maybe you were, I was there a long time ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was a long time ago. I remember that. He mentioned this one aspect of relevance, and I think that's a very important one, coming back to the student I just saw. 
extremely talented um, from China, wrote 24 preludes and fugues in all different keys. And, you know, it's, of course, impressive on a lot of different levels, but I also want to know why, other than a personal hobby or a technical exercise. It's got to go beyond that. And I think this is, those are questions which it comes down to. Um, How old is he? I suppose 22, 23. Okay. Uh, hmm. Now that's uh, old enough, to, I think, to ask yourself that question then. There's a certain point where you're just working on things vocationally. Of course. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then, yeah, it's important to yeah. learn counterpoint and orchestration and stuff like that. But then you reach a certain, you reach a certain age where I think it's okay to start introducing people to those larger questions. And I maybe mean, it screws with their head a little bit, but. Yeah. But I mean, like as a teacher, if I would have known him before, I would have done this before he starts the project. I mean, this is two and a half hours of music that he spent probably a lot of time working on. Oh my God. Yeah. I know. So there's a lot of energy that you invest and, and you want to know why you doing it um, does it break your heart to pop that bubble a two and a half hour bubble <laughs> yeah it kind of does break my heart but also gives me a certain type of joy i have to say um, um it is I mean, of course it's, it's very it's very complex well you're giving him his medicine he's going home and maybe feels <laughs> crappy but it's, you know maybe three years later he's like oh thank god well, we have to go that through those kind of things. That bubble got burst. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've written a lot of music that you spent a lot of time writing, and now you go like, oh, damn, you know, why did I do this? But it's, it's necessary. Mahler once, you know, Schoenberg once said about Mahler that watching him tying his tie in the morning, you learn, learn more about counterpoint than going to a conservatory for three years. And, of course, like, those statements are always extreme, and he was self-taught. He never went to a conservatory. But there is this kind of thing that... At the end, it goes beyond those techniques. You know, it really comes down to personality and, and they're all complex characters. But um, it's like kind of when students ask me, so what should I study for theory and history? To me, that's become the same thing. Like those, those dividing lines cease to exist. And it's important to point that out, I think. And that's, that becomes in its wider sense than also political. You know? You said you and you ended up staying here in the states, and I'm wondering if like all these talks about kind of going against politics and your type of niche that you're looking to live in. Do you think this is the best environment for that, or is part of the joy of it being in an environment that's aggressively against it sometimes? When, as you know, New York is its own special environment, and it's a great environment because you're able to find. So many different, you know, opinions, approaches, characters, and so forth. I think if I would have stayed in Houston, Texas, it would have been very different. And I felt quite alien in Houston. I never felt alien in New York. It also might have been because when I came to this country, I came to Houston first um, and then moved to New York. I'm not exactly sure. But I was in my early 20s when I came, so I still feel that I'm you know, like a visitor to a certain extent. Also, I go back to, to Germany quite a bit and I stay in close touch with a lot of people back there. I also kind of enjoy, enjoy that visiting status that I have here and, and back home because it allows me to look at things from the outside. I don't really have to, you know, determine anything. And I actually hope that will never be the case. But I found a lot of people in New York um, that I can really communicate with, that I've learned a lot of things from that I wouldn't have learned staying in Berlin. And for that, I'm, I'm very grateful, actually. 
What exactly do you mean from the out, like criticizing from the outside? Can you give me, can you give me an example of like, okay, so you came into the States and you went back to Germany, to Berlin. What about, what about your opinion? Cause this happened, obviously this happened to me too, cause we're almost retrogrades of one another or something in a, in a mm, way. Mm. But, uh, what changed about the way you viewed Germany after you were here for an extended period of time? Well, one, um, aspect that you deal with in Germany quite a bit is the aspect of, tradition i went to college in dresden and that's a city with a extremely rich and long and continuous cultural tradition it has the orchestra that's been around the longest they've been playing continuously for what like 400 some 80 years right now um the staatskapelle and that's a mentality that you do notice when you live in dresden all the time so if you even study music at the Dresden Conservatory without having been a member of the Kreuzchor, which is that boys' choir that's been around for a long time, or that special high school that prepared um, musicians for students for the conservatory. You're an outsider. You have to prove it somehow. And um, you were part of that high school, right? No, yeah. I wasn't. I came. I was an outsider. Okay. Um, so there was always that kind of divide between people that grew up in that specific cultural environment, which is very local. And I think that's what you have in Germany quite a bit, but it's also very long and very rich and people that have not been part of it. So in a way, it makes it hard to um, break away from anything, but also that that gives you that sense of tradition that you constantly deal with. Um, I think it must be very similar living in Vienna. Um, Berlin might be a little different because of, you know, the city not being all that old in terms of the status. Um, and it's such an international city at right, this point yeah, that, I mean, yeah. I'd say maybe half my friends are German. Yeah. yeah, yeah maybe yeah. even less. Yeah. Yeah. That's not true in Dresden, for example. Um, most of your friends, you know, would have lived there for most of their lives. And, yeah. and if you haven't, then, you know, then you really have to establish yourself in a very, very different way. And that can be an interesting challenge. But New York doesn't have that. So there's always that kind of sense of freedom, although it sounds like a cliche, but it's really true that you have, that you you are who you are, and, and that's it. And of course you represent, but only to a certain extent. There's much more liberty, how you deal with certain things. I, I'm used to growing up with everything that you do carries a lot of you know, weight and history and meaning. And here people are much more casual about it. And of course, I find that very inspiring, enjoyable. Also, it sometimes drives me crazy because I am who I am. And, you know, I was old enough that I was already kind of shaped when I came here. What about your music? Have you been able to shed away because of that since you've been here? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, one interesting thing, and that happened as early as my second year in, in Houston, is that kind of awareness of heritage and culture where you come from and i've looked at the music of my environment with a very different from a very different perspective and um, i started incorporating that into my music something that i probably would not have done if i would have stayed in germany so when i write a piece of music nowadays i often pair it with a piece of the past may it be bach schutz hustler something that means something to me and i kind of react to it and i think it's a it's a result of being out of your own cultural context and being in a different one that has so many different influences because of especially New York being so international. And I actually find it quite interesting. And it's interesting because I feel like that's the same for me, except maybe with, I feel like I'm always a little bit more 
politically aware when I'm in Germany of what's going on in the States than when I'm actually, when I'm actually here. Like I really read up on stuff like Mm. obsessively when I'm in Germany, when I'm here, there's something about, I always, I always let it slip a little bit, Mm. you know, that, that type of awareness. Yeah. Well, I think it comes out of this sense of belonging versus not belonging or not quite belonging and being also comfortable and, and, and so forth. And no, I have exactly the same. And I also find it interesting that my perspective of this country, the United States, is quite different here from what it is over there. Um, because I know that in Germany, a lot of people are quite critical. And that's also based on a certain level of ignorance because they're not trying to understand the country on its own terms, but from their own perspective, which again is something that I think is also quite European. That kind of notion of, you know, being that old continent of high culture, which makes it look down on a lot of things which are different, which I think is problematic. You know, I don't, I don't get that from people, honestly. Like, I, that was my biggest fear mm-hmm. of going over there, is that people were just going to really kind of rag on me a lot for being an American. It was a big fear, and especially when I in the beginning when you're really kind of struggling with the language. And I didn't get any of that. Mm-hmm. And everybody was really interested and open to, you know, I almost got the, op- well, maybe it has something to do with Berlin. I think it does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of reasons for that, too. I mean, for once, as you say, like it's very international. A lot of people have moved there, um, especially after 1990. But also before that, the status of West Berlin was one that you didn't have to serve the military if you were a citizen of West Berlin because of its status um, after the war. So people that wanted to avoid military, that wanted to avoid certain political constraints that you did face in West Germany moved to West Berlin. And because of that, it had a very specific intellectual atmosphere. And I think it still shows somehow. Also, there's a large percentage of immigrants that you wouldn't find if you go to, let's say, Dresden or Leipzig or even to certain cities. Yeah, in my West neighborhood Germany. is almost all... I mean, I live with Germans, but my neighborhood is almost all Turkish. So you think it would have been different if I moved to Dresden? I would have gotten probably a lot more flack. For... Yeah, I mean, very different. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Um, but also could have been an interesting experience for you. So you should think about it. For what, to, to, put myself, <laughs> to put myself in a situation where people look down on me? <laughs> well, I mean, it's maybe not looking down, but definitely... Condescending, or I don't know. You know, like in my family, so also it depends on the type of people that you're dealing with, but in my family, the idea that they have about the United States, um, I don't know where that came from, but it's like that, that there's no healthcare system, there's no retirement money, and there's no unemployment support and so forth. I mean, those things are simply not true. I also have read a study. It was in an article in, in Die Zeit that we think that education in the United States is reserved to people that have the financial means. But in Germany, the percentage of lower class or lower income children to higher education is actually much, much lower than in this country. There seem to be certain cliches that we think are the case although that's not not even the reality and it has to do with simply knowledge it's crazy how misrepresentation can always when you go there do you defend it oh yeah yeah, they're wrong they're great is something like that i mean not like not not that clear but uh, (laughs) yeah definitely um and yeah it takes quite quite a bit of 
of convincing. Yeah, there's even some people that wouldn't even want to travel here because of the political system. And I think, I mean, come on, you want to know about it. At the same time, they talk about it all the time, too. Like if you open the news, I mean, there's always something that's about New York or the United States and so forth. There's a lot of interest. It might also be because the impact America had, especially in West Germany after the war. I'm not exactly sure. It's a very complex relationship, but I, I always end up defending it, that's for sure. Yeah. I'm just interested in like how things work politically because it's, it's yeah, it'd been interesting if I'd gone somewhere else. Because I don't, I, I really, it's almost like a very, you're describing another country to me. Yeah. <laughs> because I spent almost all of my time in Berlin. And then when I, when I go, it'll be like for a residency, it'll still be artists that are A, international and B, extremely open-minded. I really haven't gotten any flack from any Europeans. Well, next time I'm over there, we'll, we'll go and spend some <laughs> time in the suburbs. In, yeah. in, <laughs> introduce me to some people who won't like me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not, I mean, it's the interesting thing is um, once it's an interpersonal relationship, it's different from the kind of gray cliche of Americans or Germans. I mean, I, I get this here too quite a bit that whether I want or not, I am from Germany, I speak with a German accent, I represent a certain culture, and um, I'm being taken as a representation and sometimes have to respond in a way you know, that I didn't even expect because of my, of my cultural environment. And often it has to do with, again, the years between 33 and 45. Really? And, people still do that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they still do that. But again, it's a cliche, and those cliches grow in mass media and, and, and all those kind of things. But know? doesn't time help separate that? You would, I mean, nobody's getting mad at Spanish people for the Inquisition. You know, for the Inquisition, <laughs> you know I mean, but like it's mm. it, it was like there's a there's a huge huge amount of time, and mathematically they probably look up your dates and realize that you were born in the seventies, and then how could they possibly associate you with? Well, I think I mean there's still people around that live through that time, and as long as that's the case, um, uh, that's something that will be looked at from a different perspective. Like there's nobody around that witnessed the Spanish Inquisition, so it's it's kind of past. But I yeah, think yeah, yeah. that's that's like that's like an extreme example, thing. obviously. Yeah. No, but even look at the civil war in this country, um, or like the first war in in Europe. There's nobody really around that experienced that, but there's still people that lived through the second war, consciously, like actively, and so forth. And as long as that's the case, it will be part of a certain awareness. Once there's nobody to talk about specific experiences. Once it will be entirely secondhand or even even further, might be different. But yeah, no, definitely. You, so you think that's the big landmark? That's one for... of them. But I also think that mass media and I mean, look into just Hollywood movies. How many still deal with those twelve years still being produced and out there? That's another one. Um, it's being kept alive, and that's something that you know also is being discussed quite a bit how that might almost be counterproductive that there's so much dealing that's with my that. answer do you think it's being do you think it's a it's being kept alive in a healthy way if all of a sudden it's uh i mean you know for once again it's hard for me um to be entirely objective because growing up in east germany we're so brainwashed especially f regarding those 12 years from a very specific perspective that people got often so saturated that they counter-reacted, overreacted, and so forth. And that's something that you still deal with nowadays, especially in East Germany or former East Germany. So yes, you have to keep things alive, but it has to be in a healthy way. 
how that's being done is of course very very difficult um because once it becomes like a ritual becomes a religion you know and and then once you don't allow questions and criticism but how much can you allow those in certain contexts with certain subject matters it is just very difficult maybe even impossible mm -hmm. i think probably impossible yeah or impossible to define as good or bad from like from situation to situation yeah of yeah. course yeah but yeah. once you talk about hollywood movies i mean there's always this good versus evil black versus white kind of thing things are being simplified naturally you know because you want people to consume those um But not you good can, movies, you can, though. Not good media. Not good movies, definitely. No, I'm talking about mass media in that yeah. regard. Yeah. So documentaries, different story. But once you turn this into a movie and you want a lot of people to see it. and But still, there's also good examples in that regard. What about, what about uh, Weissabond? Did, did you see that? Did you see that movie? Yeah. I mm -hmm. thought that was I thought that was almost a good example and very nuanced explanation of a situation leading up to you know yeah no like, I I, I, that I think that's an example of good yeah. media that kind of explains no, that clarified things in my head in a in in a good and almost yeah. fair way yeah, yeah yeah but also maybe because it it didn't attempt to draw big conclusions you know it, it showed things how they work on a very small yeah, yeah. scale um, yeah. I'm reading Magic Mountain or rereading it right now and it's it's very similar to that regard that. I know I know how it ends and when it ends, which is also 1914. But the way society or like one individual is being discussed, like the conclusions on a different level at a different time. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's talk about your music. Music. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. that was. Uh, um, <laughs> it's too interesting, though. So, it's interesting. You before I'm going to try and bring it back a little bit. You were saying now that I've moved to the states, I kind of think about my own history in a different way and now actually I try and pair a piece of music that I'm writing with a piece of history or a, a piece of musical history that I thought was part of my heritage and you did this with this solo violin piece that we're going to play on this so explain why did you choose this piece what did you find from it how did you approach it um, in that specific um, case I have found an analysis of the Bach Chacon by a German musicologist. Her name is Helga Turner, which was extremely interesting because she did a very, and I'm personally quite interested in musical analysis. She did a very simple thing with a piece that's been a mystery for a long time. I mean, the Chacon comes after the Jig, so after the last movement. It is the longest single movement piece that Bach ever composed for solo violin. We don't know who he wrote it for. We don't even know whether it was actually performed during his lifetime. People wrote all kinds of transcriptions of the piece because they didn't think it would really be a piece that could be performed in a in a recital kind of setting. So there's a version for violin and piano, forehand piano, left-hand piano. There's all kinds of different ones. And all she did is placing the piece into the context of Bach's life. And she found that the piece was written after he returned home to Kürten, being in the south at a spa town with his employer for a couple of weeks, entering his apartment to find out that his wife had died and was buried a week before his return. And then he wrote that piece. And she found choral tunes that um, refer to Easter being hidden and part of the musical structure and came up with an analysis and um, eventually a performance where those choral tunes are being sung as the solo violin is playing 
the piece as if there was like a musical foreground that through a compositional process had become a background to an extent that we don't even need it anymore in order to understand the piece. So I found that recording, um, which was done by Christoph Poppen and the Hilliard Ensemble. And ever since, it's impossible for me to hear the solo violin version without hearing those voices in my head. And that I found quite interesting because the relationship between fore, middle ground and background when you compose something always interests me because it kind of works in stages. And I'm pretty sure that people at Bach's time that heard the piece, that heard those choral tunes in church every Sunday for all their life, were in a very different way sensitive toward the solo violin, Chacon, as we are, because we don't know those um, those chorales as, as well as people did back then. So I'm interested in that kind of relationship. And what I did in my piece is basically also using those choral tunes in the same order and manner as Bach did, but finding my own way of using them as a background and creating my own compositional foreground. So sometimes it kind of, the piece comes to the surface, so to speak, but sometimes it's beyond the surface. And you would find something by maybe like scratching the surface, by investigating, but not by just looking at the facade. So that's the relationship between the Bach Chacon and my piece. And it was written specifically for a concert where the Chacon was performed. So they kind of pair each other. But of course, you don't have to. It, it also lives on its own, just as you don't have to know those chorales in order to really like listen to the Bach Chacon. You can do this without knowing any of it. It works on its own. But of course, knowing it um, is a very different experience. There's moments when the Chacon kind of comes up beyond the surface and there's like quotes, you hear it, and they become echoes. But I'm interested in those concepts, like echoes in general and shadows and filters and so forth. But most people have heard the piece and whether you hear it right before the piece, before my piece, or whether you've heard it in the past, I don't think it makes that much of a difference.
How do you decide when it's going to come into the foreground and when it's not? Do you have a strict way of deciding when the Bach is going to become more foreground and then kind of your piece is going to become more background? Or is it always this type of personal decision that you're making, personal intuitive decision that you're making in order to bring it out? It's kind of both, but I like when I compose processes um, and they're usually integration or disintegration. So things get polluted or the other way around. I mean, that's a compositional technique. That's not something that you necessarily experience in a direct way when you hear the piece, the, the final product. But those moments when it's very clear, they usually are at the beginning or the end of those processes. So they are part of a certain narrative that's part of composing a piece although the experience at the end might be very different. What other pieces have you done that have been related to, that have been paired with a historical piece? I would say that lately a lot of my instrumental pieces refer to pieces of the past, and that might not just be one, it might be a bunch. I wrote a piece for cello and piano, which is called um, Kurdish, The Art of Losing. It's based loosely on a novel by an Hungarian writer, Imre Kertes. And he mentions Schoenberg, Mahler, Beethoven, and I quote those composers in the piece as well, but in distorted and, and filtered ways. But especially when I write for choir, I usually pair a piece with a specific piece of the past. The reason also being that I work with a poet who writes the poetry based on the lyrics of that piece of the past, which might be Brahms, Schütz, Hasler, all kinds of choral pieces that I used to sing when I went to high school. So there's a lot of um, relationships that work on many different levels, the lyrics, the music, the form, material, and so forth. I'm wondering if you ever have trouble, like somehow the historical piece is imposing itself too much on what your personal take on something might be. And then how do you push your own personality or how do you put your own stamp on always referring to something of a different time period or a different style or something like, like so you're working with, uh, you were working with, you know, um, box or violin piece hmm. and then you're working with a choral, you know, a choral piece and referring to Wagner. Those are two vastly different styles. How do you take them and make them Ryko somehow? Well, that's the challenge. And that's basically the challenge I'm looking for when I do it. Um, I think it, might become a fear at some point or actually could become a fear. I'm also pretty certain that at some point I will continue continue to do this in a very different way or maybe not at all. But I find it interesting. I mean, I'm interested in time in general and I'm trying to explore as many ways as possible how to deal with that specific issue of time and dealing with something of the past is what happens obviously within a piece of music um, because it's not only entirely linear the way we listen to it, we also have expectations and we also remember things and things come back transformed, not transformed, transformed just by time and so forth. 
But I also like to compare this to, let's say, the work of an architect. Um, because if you are building a building, it often happens in a certain context. So it means you do produce something, but there will be something right next to it. To what extent do you react to it, agree, disagree? All those things are completely up to you. But when you have a piece performed, um, there's always the context of a program. So there will be a piece before yours and a piece before after yours, or there might that might be the first or the intermission. But to what extent do you also allow those pieces to be part of yours? So it means it goes beyond just composing a piece. It means that you start to compose um, a program. And I like those ideas of going beyond just the boundaries. Do you do that? Are you an occasion composer? Occasion composer meaning? Um, meaning that you like, hey, Riker, I need a piece for a solo violin. It's going to, you know, that these other two composers are also composing a piece. Plus I'm going to do this Bach piece. Interesting. And then, and, and then you're like, okay, that's important information for me to know. I'm going to write something that's going to fit into that context or not fit into that context, depending on what, you know, decision I, I'm going to make. Yeah. Yeah, I actually am. Um, so when I write a piece of music, it's always for a specific context and occasion. And it means that, I mean, besides instrumentation, that's also space. There's also other music that will be performed. And I, I try to incorporate those into my piece as much as possible. Of course, I have to be very careful that the piece at some point might be performed in a different context and it still has to work. Exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah. That, you know, that's the concern. And there's also the idea that I think a lot of composers are sit down and you're like, this is for the ages. And then they're not thinking about mm -hmm. the occasion. They're thinking about the occasions 200 years from now or something like that when they kind of stamp it. Yeah. But you seem to be the opposite. You're the, you know, you're the occasion composer. Well, at least that's what inspires me, the, uh, the, um, the occasion. But of course, I also want to go beyond. Jörg Hachet in, in Dresden, he always said that I want to hear a piece that I wrote at least once and I want to hear it at least twice. I'm always interested to be able to compare one with the other so that one occasion that triggers a piece will obviously not come back. So I always keep in mind how would it work in a different circumstance and context. But since what triggers the piece and coming back to the to the Chacon by Bach, there was a specific experience in his life that triggered the piece. Um, to what extent that will manifest itself in its structure, whether that's for, middle, or background, that's something I'm very interested in, but also maybe because I'm interested in musical analysis, and that's maybe also part because of, because of my teaching. Yeah. How much does your teaching affect your... And are, are you really into musical analysis because you teach at a conservatory and you have to do it all day? Good question. I mean... I always, I'm, I'm always fascinated with the conditioning of... Like I felt like I had to get away from institutions for a while because if it was affecting my thinking and therefore like the context of the music my was being presented in and also the way people were understanding it in a way that I wasn't happy with. Hmm. And uh, I'm I'm wondering if you're aware of your conditioning in that sense that you kind of, you're the head of the theory department at a conservatory in New York. You presumably you teach quite a bit of theory and analysis and also are having doing that with historical pieces as well do you think that has something to do with it bleeding so much into your the other world of composing um it's a good question actually i never really thought about it of course i've thought about to what extent being at an institution as much as i am affects me as a composer 
And it definitely does. I mean, any kind of environment does affect you. I think at the end of the day, it can still be up to us, whether that's a positive or negative force. And I do anything I can to make it a positive one, a creative one, because talking about a piece of music that's part of history, there's no um, formula how to do this. Like, there's a lot of different ways and you can be very creative about it. And, and I'm in a fortunate position to, first of all, pick and choose those pieces, but also talk about them in a way that I find very interesting. And what I find interesting is interrelationships. Like I'm not interested in Roman numeral analysis. That's something that I teach as well, but that's not something that I find inspiring. What I find interesting is talking about the relationship between architecture and music or philosophy and music to talk about the Chacon based on it being kind of like a testimony of his life. But how do you approach this when you analyze the piece of music? And that's also a linear process. I mean, what do you talk about first, second, third, and so forth? Trying to recreate a compositional mindset, like what, what did Bach intend? You know, how did he go about writing a piece of music? music? I find that very inspiring. And I think composers always do that somehow in some kind of way because at the end um, like what does inspire us and you know there's no output without input there's a german musicologist um, ulrich siegele that i met a few years ago and i've known his writings for quite a few years and he was also one of those very inspiring people because his approach to analysis is exactly this that as a composer you deal with certain choices that you make so what do you choose and what do you not choose? Like how do the choices actually function as a representation of your aesthetics? And how does this tie into a larger context of basically who you are? So mm. being in like analysis is extremely creative yeah. if you do not fall into, for, um, fall into formulas. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, that's, but it's also incredibly difficult. It's very easy to well, teach mm. a contained world. Yeah. 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 A equals B, which equals C, and that's why this piece mm. is structurally good class over. You know, yeah. The bell rings, they go off. Of but if you're talking about all these kind of metaphysical ideas, then A becomes almost subjective in the choices you're choosing, the directions you're choosing to go. But also, it's hard to convince people then, I think, right? Because if you can just qualify something with a set of numbers that are perfectly related to one another, mm. then... It's hard to argue with that. It's mm. easy to be bored by it, mm. <laughs> but it's hard to argue with that. If you're taking a Bach piece, maybe you work with those numbers a little bit and then relating them to the Chaconne, but then you're also saying his wife died a week before he returned, mm. and this is why this piece is the way it is. Then a lot of people sitting down are like, I don't, I don't buy it. Of or course. This has, what does this have to do with me? So yeah. it's, it's harder for them to... Mm. How do, you con like, do you feel like it's harder to convince people in a way. Well, it's actually interesting that you mentioned that because over the years, and, you know, when you talk about music and you leave music, um, meaning you talk about, let's say, numbers or you talk about biography or mathematics, physics, whatever that is, it's always dangerous. I think it is very necessary to leave music because otherwise it becomes so contained. And besides the fact that it's maybe harder or actually easier to convince people it's definitely harder to test. And a little bit dangerous, yeah. too. You can also maybe, like, offend some people. or you, like, Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, you yeah. do. Um, yeah. But, I mean, that's all part of it. And I've 
made the had the experience that when you talk about let's say Bach's wife who had died, that people jump on those things way too quickly, because there is a lot of research that's necessary and, and investigation before you make claims like this. You can't just like say those things. You really have to have looked at this piece from a lot of different perspectives in order to eventually find out that this is the one that works best for my understanding of the piece. Because it is, at the end, entirely subjective. Because the hierarchies are up to you. Unless you fall into formulas like, you know, set theory, Schenkerian, and so forth. But I think that may be a little bit of the criticism is that you just said, okay, my understanding of the piece, but then like some, you know, snooty 18-year-old is like, what do I care about your understanding of the yep. piece? But if you completely remove your own kind of opinion and history from it, then they can't. Like argue with that. That's yeah. true, but at the end, um, at a certain level, and you know that's the one that that become, where it becomes interesting. Of course, we cannot argue whether it's a one or a four chord, but whether um, a certain biographical data is, is relevant or not, you could. But this is when it becomes interesting, and I think it's um, there's no other way of it being subjective. It's like studying with a teacher, you know, like a like a pianist. Of course, they will teach their understanding of that specific Beethoven sonata. There is no one understanding of it. Also, you do translate those things, and a translation is always an interpretation by definition of, of the term itself. There is no objectivity at some point. But if you are able to teach tools to gain subjective understanding of something by giving in a model of how this could work, then you actually achieved a lot. At the end, it is, it is very difficult. For example, just to give you a quick one, I teach an opera class. It's a history class. And I talk about Benjamin Britten and I talk about death in Venice. So you do have to talk about the aspect of erotic attraction of an older man toward a younger boy. For it's example. easy to do that in opera because you are dealing with, yeah. yeah. People, people, people do get yeah. offended. Um, and people even get offended by the story itself. And it's actually pretty amazing um, the types of reactions that you get. But at the end of the day, that means it's alive. And I think there's nothing better than that. What do you want people to get out of? Can we talk about your teaching for a little bit? No, of course. Or, yeah. Mm -hmm. what, what, what do you want people to get out of your... What tools do you want them to come out with? Is it proper analysis? Obviously, it's not proper analysis of Roman numerals. And obviously, you're teaching them something that is saying, here's my personal take on it. But of, of, of course, you're not the type of person to say, oh, welcome to RICO 101. Your, mm -hmm. you know, your, your goal in this class is to learn how I think about things. So what are you trying to give them by letting them know what your specific take is on something? It's it's very interesting that you ask, because for once, I do want them to be perfect at Roman numeral analysis, um, not only because... Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a vocation. It's, Vocations yeah. are important to learn if you're, yeah. you know, um, if you're a musician. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's again, it's a tool, but I think everything has a certain meaning. And, you know, if a piece by Beethoven starts on the four chord, not on the one chord, like there's so much that's being communicated by that. And music is a language. And that means it's based on rules. And that means it's also based on exceptions. And if we don't see when a rule is being followed or broken, then I think the composers don't communicate to us because we just accept everything that we see. So there's a lot of things that I want. I mean, flexibility is definitely one of them. And um, at the end, of course, it depends on 
who is sitting in front of me, whether that's people that want to play in orchestras or, or composers or doctorate students, people that are going to teach. But the fascination of a piece of music, how it can stay alive for so many years, hundreds and hundreds of years, which is something that we can see by looking at this as such a complex situation of so many aspects that are entirely musical, but also go way beyond, that never really grows old. I mean, that's basically one of the goals, but also simply like, why are we doing this? You know, why are we in music and spending all this time? It really then affects life. Yeah. So for example, to give you one specific, when I talk about a dissonance treatment in freshman theory, so you talk about a suspension and it has to have a preparation and a resolution. It means you talk about time, you talk about past, present, and future. It's exactly the same concept. And also means that anything is not only shaped by what you do at the moment, but also what happens before and after. And meaning, you know, how to talk about the suspension gives you the possibility to also draw conclusions that go way beyond that. And if you look at this, a suspension based on that perspective, it actually becomes quite fascinating. And I try to always tie things together so it's not something that becomes narrow, but, but wider. How long have you been teaching? Um, it's my 13th year, so I've completed the, the first dozen. This is, okay, so this, this is just out of, well, I mean, I guess everything mm -hmm. I've done has been out of curiosity, but did you start out like this, like as this type of teacher? I'm wondering if a type, I'm wondering if you, I don't know, it's impressive to hear you talk about things like this, and I'm just wondering if this is something that happened over time. Like, what's the story of you coming to these conclusions about how you specifically want to teach? Also, it's a very good question. I think, of course, it builds over time, for sure. But also, I was just fortunate to, to have had fantastic teachers that already made me think about those things and made me aware of those things. And I mentioned Jörg Hachert, Niels Wigeland, he at MSM is another one. I've been fortunate enough to have had teachers that kind of opened my eyes and perception and made me look beyond. So I, I think it's a combination, but I would always put those guys on the very top. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. Thanks very much. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Really. Thanks.